are you just watching? Episode 33, 2012. And no, I don't mean the year, I mean the movie. I'm Eve Franklin, and welcome to the one and only podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm so happy to bring the podcast back for the end of the year, and I'm hoping to come back and do it a little more often so that you guys don't have to wait for months and months and months between podcasts. But just so you know, Daniel Lewis has absolutely three wonderful weekly podcasts that he does, and he's just too busy to join in on this podcast too often. So we probably will not be hearing his voice on this podcast too often, at least for the foreseeable future. But you can hear his voice by going and checking out his other terrific podcasts. He does the the Ramen Noodle Comedy Podcast, the Audacity Podcast, which is about podcasting, and the Once Podcast, which is a fan and review podcast for the TV show Once Upon a Time on ABC. And you can find all of those on noodle.mx network website. So we're here to talk about the movie 2012. And you can find the show notes for this podcast on areyoujustwatching.com slash 33. And I'm going to be putting some links to some uh, scientific articles and other things in the show notes that I will not be giving through the podcast. So you will need to go check those out for those links. And I highly encourage you to stay tuned all the way to the end of the podcast because I'm going to introduce a new segment that I'm hoping to get your involvement in. So stay tuned. That was just a small portion of the absolutely beautiful score to the movie 2012, composed by Harold Closer and Thomas Wander. Six months ago, I was made aware of a situation so devastating that at first I refused to believe it. However, through the concerted efforts of our brightest scientists, we have confirmed its validity. The world as we know it will soon come to an end. With that dire prediction and the uh, a bunch of scientific jargon at the beginning of the movie, 2012 sets the stage for a global catastrophe And the only people who know about it are the scientists who discovered it and the heads of state of all of the major countries of the world. That was the President of the United States addressing the other heads of state with nobody else present. He wanted to keep it a really, really, really big secret. And this is one of the things that's going to be an interesting underlying story through 2012 is that it is a very big secret because they don't want people to know that the world is ending. And I'm going to come back to that. But first, I want to deal just a little bit with the scientific underpinnings of the story, because it's very interesting how the director writer of this movie set this up. This is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to podcast on this movie. 
In this case, I had this idea to do a modern retelling of Noah's Ark. At that time, it was not really fully a disaster movie, but then we discovered there's like one theory in the 50s, which cross displacement, which leads to a global flood, and that came with a lot of disaster scenarios. And through that, it kind of became a disaster movie. That was Roland Emmerich, and that was in the. There was a special feature on the DVD um, explaining where he came about the idea for this uh, movie. And he's actually known for quite a few disaster movies. He did The Day After Tomorrow, uh, Independence Day. There's there's quite a few that are under his credit. He he seems to like to do this is the end of the world kind of movies. But this one was interesting in that he was actually trying to do a Noah's Ark movie. And that is actually important because if you haven't seen the movie, I'm really hoping that you have, but if you haven't seen the movie, you find out at the end of the movie that the spaceships that everybody thinks is going to take the lucky ones away from the global disaster actually are arcs. And they were going to make uh, several arcs that were going to save as many people as possible but because the timetable moved up on them. They were unprepared and only four of them were done. And then one of those four got destroyed So before they could even board it. So there were only three arcs full of people that survive at the end. Now you think that they would have known the timetable was going to move up because the Mayans actually predicted that the world was going to end on December 21st, 2012. At least people think that they predicted it because they ended their calendar on that date. So that means that if people had just been paying attention instead of listening to the scientists, I mean, what do scientists know? They would have known that they needed to move their timetable up because that date was fast approaching and they weren't ready. But we, we can only know that because they actually put that in the movie. This mass suicide was actually discovered by a documentary crew here in the ancient Mayan city of Tikal. Now, the victims, and we've seen many, are said to have adhered to the Mayan quiche calendar, which predicts the end of time to occur on the 21st of December of this year due to the sun's destructive forces. Thank you, Mark. Strangely enough, scientific records do support the fact that we are heading for the biggest solar climax in recorded history. Okay, so not only was this being reported on the news for everybody to hear that the end of the world was coming, and we had people committing suicide in the ancient Mayan cities because they knew the end of the world was coming, but it's very interesting that there was also this crazy guy in Yellowstone National Park who was broadcasting on, I believe, an AM frequency so that everybody could hear how he was predicting, based on the Mayan calendar and some science and other things that were going on, that the world would end on that date. So it makes me wonder that how on earth the heads of state didn't know what the date was, even though it seemed like everybody but them knew. But now this this interesting guy in Yellowstone, he has this little blog, animated blog he's put together that explains the scientific underpinnings for basically this whole movie in a nutshell. In ancient times, the Mayan people were the first civilization to discover that this planet had an expiration date. According to their calendar, in the year 2012, a cataclysmic event will unfold caused by an alignment of the planets in our solar system that only happens every 640,000 years. Oh, not again. Just imagine the Earth as an orange. Oh, our 
sun will begin to emit such extreme amounts of radiation that the core of the Earth will melt. That's the inside part of the orange, leaving the crust of our planet free to shift. In 1958, Professor Charles Hapgood named it Earth Crust Displacement. Albert Einstein did support it. That. People will get it all. The forces of Mother Nature will be so devastating, it will bring an end to this world on winter solstice 12, 21, 12. Always remember, folks, you heard it first from Charlie Frost. Now, actually, interestingly enough, you'll notice that Roland Emmerich actually mentioned this gentleman's name when he was talking about the mechanism for the flood that he used for this movie. Hapgood, Professor Hapgood, that was mentioned on Charlie's blog, actually existed. He actually published ideas about this theory he called Earth Crust Displacement, and it was published in the 50s and refuted by most scientists. They thought it was a bunch of junk. And the reason why he put this forward, if you look him up on the internet, you can find a bunch of information on him. But the main reason why he put this theory forward was he was trying to explain the disappearance of Atlantis. And his idea was that Atlantis used to be in the Antarctic, and the Antarctic was not where it is now, and that the Earth's crust displaced and moved Atlantis down to the South Pole, and it became Antarctica. So his theory was that Antarctica was Atlantis, and that's what happened to the the city of it, or the country. Not, was that a city or a country? Anyway, that's what happened to Atlantis. Now, I have to admit, it's kind of a far-fetched theory, but there's some interesting things about that, because... If you look into modern-day creation scientists and their theories for how Noah's flood happened, you'll find out that we have this new theory called catastrophic plate tectonics. And catastrophic plate tectonics, I don't want to even put it in the same realm as Earth's crust displacement because they are different. But they are similar because they both explain how the continents broke apart and shifted. And even evolutionists and long-agers believe that the continents have drifted apart. The difference between continental drift, which is the uniformitarianism view of, of the continental, how the continents came to be where they are, and catastrophic plate tectonics, is that modern creationists believe it happened fast. And uniformitarians believe that it happened at the same rate that we see the continents drifting today. Because you see, the continents do drift. They get a little further apart um, along in, in the Atlantic seaboard. They're drifting apart a little fraction of a centimeter every year. But the, if you extrapolate that drift backwards in time without it changing, you would come up with millions and millions of years for them to get in the position that they're in now. But modern creationists believe that it happened rapidly and that it was a, a, a catastrophic event that just pushed the continents apart in this massive, swiftly moving catastrophe that pushed tsunamis up on, the, on the, all the continental masses and created basically a global flood. There's a lot of information about this. I'm going to put links to several articles in the show notes. If you're technically inclined, you can read a technical article on catastrophic plate tectonics written by PhD scientists. And if you are a layman and don't really want to handle all of that technical garbage, I'm going to put uh, a more layman-oriented article that explains it in very simple terms with pictures so you can understand how it works. I'm also going to put a link to some stuff about Professor Hapgood and his 
earth displacement theory in the show notes. So be sure you check out our show notes for those links. And those show notes are at are you just watching spelled out dot com slash 33, the number 33. Now, a lot of scientists, I will admit, actually think that even the creationist version of the catastrophic plate tectonics theory is as stupid as Hapgood's Earth's displacement. But you have to understand that they have to have the millions of years. They have to have the millions of years to explain every their worldview for how the world came to be. And so they're only going to see evidence that supports that theory. But you can't look in the past. We can't experiment on the past. We can't observe the past. There's no way that we can look back and verify that the method that they are using to build up these millions of years, their their uniformitarian ideas for how the continents have drifted apart and how canyons form and all the various other slow processes that they think are the explanation for the millions of years. We can't observe any of that. Nobody is was there through all of that millions of years of history to verify that that is exactly what happened. In fact, it actually makes a lot more sense that things on this planet have happened catastrophically. And there's some very good evidences for that because we know that, for instance, the Grand Canyon, for it to have been carved slowly as uniformitarianists believe, they would have we wouldn't be finding big, massive boulders at the base of the canyon that could only have been moved by massive amounts of water rapidly. If a little tiny river had carved that canyon over a very period of, long period of time, you wouldn't see these big, massive boulders at the bottom of the canyon because there was never have been enough water to have moved those boulders. And also, when you think about the, the crustal nature of our planet and the mountains, it would have taken a massive amount of force to upthrust most of the mountain ranges around the world. They are all upthrusted crustal plates where caused by collision. And if you collide two plates together very slowly, they crunch, but they don't upthrust at such drastic angles. And so for the it, it's I mean basic physics, if you throw two moving objects together very fast, they're going to create some pretty massive crumbling of their surfaces and a catastrophic movement of continents and and the, the way that they move and shift and everything that really makes more sense of the kind of mountain ranges that we have across the world and where those mountain ranges are located now there was in this movie a little bit of technical jargon they they start out the movie actually with explaining how the uh, earth's crust displacement theory works you just heard it in the blog but I'm going to let you hear it from the scientist's viewpoint as well, because what they are saying is actually backing up what Charlie says in his blog. So, what are we looking at? These neutrinos acting normally, minuscule mass, uh, no electrical charge. They pass through ordinary matter almost undisturbed. Your message said the count doubled after the last solar eruptions. That was last week. But this happened two days ago. Biggest sun eruptions in human history, causing the highest neutrino count we've ever recorded. My God. But that's not what worries me, Adrian. For the first time ever, the neutrinos are causing a physical reaction. Now, 
the scientists then go down to look at a shaft that goes into the further down into the the core of the planet and it's full of boiling water and basically they're saying that the neutrinos have heated up the core and this actually this this snippet from the movie actually happens uh, like three years prior to 2012 and so it's the introduction to the president going and telling everybody hey the world's about to end later on you see those same scientists putting their heads together in in just a, a few days before the end of the world and this is what they're finding my colleagues in argentina and ontario have almost identical data it's so hot here we've had to seal off the mine you double check the numbers i triple check my friend i wish we were wrong but we're not the earth's crust is destabilizing now i want to move on from the scientific uh, exploration of the movie because there's so much more in this movie to talk about beyond the science. But there's one last thing I want to talk about, and that is the tsunamis that you see happening at the end of the movie. Because you see, they make up actually a very big deal about it because it's the movie poster that you see for the movie of this monk standing on top of a mountain in the Himalayas, and you see this big, massive wall of water coming over the mountains at him. And he goes and he starts ringing the bell before the waters wash him away. And you also see uh, the Indians move in India moving up the, uh, to higher ground trying to escape the tsunamis. And these big, massive wall of water comes over at them and, and kills them all. Now, the difference between the way they present these tsunamis in this movie and how creation scientists think the flood actually happened is that the tsunamis would not have had to be so massive because this, the creation scientists and their plate tectonics theory, is that the, there weren't really any high mountains prior to the flood because the mountains were upthrust by the, continental dr- the, the massive catastrophic continental drift and, and collisions. And so therefore, the waves didn't have to be so high to wash over all the mountains. In fact, there is in the Bible a psalm, and psalms are pretty much figurative language, so you kind of have to think of it as a poem describing an, an actual event. But this is um, in Psalm 104. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down, and to the place that you appointed for them, you set a boundary that they may not pass, so they might not again cover the earth. Again, that was Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because we, there is scripture that tells us that, that God was going to use floodwaters to destroy the earth, and then he promised that he would never do it again. And a lot of people wonder where all of the water came from in order to uh, cover the entire earth. That's actually one of the things that a lot of people use as an argument against there being ever being a global flood. But the issue that we have here is that if you, if you leveled out the earth, there would be plenty of water to cover it. In fact, there would be enough water to cover it for almost a mile deep. It's the mountains and the, and the sunk valleys of the sea floor that keep that water from covering all of the continental masses in our, in our globe. And the water for the flood, if you go by the catastrophic plate tectonics, a lot of it would have come from the deep core of the earth. It would have been 
thrust up by a shifting of the earth's plates. And then after the flood, the Lord pushed the continents apart, which created mountains. And at the same time, that humongous trench in the in the oceans was created by the the erosion caused by this water coming up from the earth's core. So you ended up with these very deep valleys in the oceans and these very high mountains on the continents, and that allowed all of the water to flow off of the continental masses and create the oceans that we have today. And at the same time, because of the catastrophic nature of the flood and and the rain and all of the atmospheric issues that were created, it we had an ice age which pulled all of that moisture up into the coldest regions of the of the globe and created our ice caps. And so if you melt our ice caps today, we would have more water in our oceans, but because it's all held up in ice, we have more continental mass than we would if all of the ice melted. So yes, we do not have currently have enough water to cover our highest mountains without those mountains sinking and without the ocean floors rising up. But because of the boundaries that God has set on our globe, it prevents us from having another global flood. So this is all according to scripture. Everything that we see in our in our world today, it's really fascinating that you can work this out scripturally and it's all there it's all in scripture i was listening to the broadcast and i was wondering what exactly is it that's going to start in hollywood <sighs> it's the apocalypse end of days the judgment day the end of the world my friend christians call it the rapture but the the mayans knew about it the hopis the uh the i ching the bible kind of uh I love the way he says the Bible, kind of. As I just said before I played this clip, the Bible does explain quite a bit of this. And I think it's hilarious that he actually misrepresents what the Christians say about the end of the world, because he says Christians call it the rapture. Well, actually, Christians call the rapture the time when Jesus calls his people out of the world. The term rapture doesn't have to do with the end of the world, just when he calls his people out of the world. So... According to um, most eschatological views regarding the rapture, it occurs prior to the tribulation. I know there are some people who believe it occurs in the tribulation and some people who believe it occurs after the tribulation. But the final judgment of the earth happens after Christians are taken out. So we wouldn't even be here when the earth is destroyed. Now, the apocalypse is part of the tribulation, and... The judgment of the earth is referred to multiple times in scripture, and it has very little to do with water. In fact, it has to do with fire. And I'm going to read you several several scriptures here. Um, let's see. The first one comes from 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? And it's interesting that they say the Hopi and the 
Mayans all knew that this was going to happen. And in fact, if you believe the whole setup for this movie, the Mayans had the exact date that was going to be the end of the world, which is the, basically the title of the movie, 2012. But in scripture, it says in Matthew 24, this is 36 through 39 and verse 44, it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the whole setup of this movie that we were warned, that we that there was a prediction and we should have been ready, well, we should be ready. We're, the scripture tells us we should be ready because it could happen at any moment. There's no set date. There's no time that we are going to say, yep, the Lord's going to end the world on that date, and so that's the time that we have to be ready. No, we have to be ready every second of our lives because we don't know when he's coming back, and we don't know when that judgment is going to occur. Let me ask you something. Do you really believe those people would behave so selflessly knowing that their own lives were at stake? I hope so. Will people act selflessly when they know the world's going to end? Are we going to have panic are we going to have people getting the chance to say goodbye to each other? Are we going to have people that, you know, do horrible things trying to get rescued? And I think that's actually one of the themes of this movie because you see you see a family going from one disaster to another trying to to get to safety and they don't stop to think about all of the other people around them. They don't stop to give them any kind of warnings. They don't stop to uh, spread the knowledge that they have, that there is this life-saving boat that they can get to. They just continue on trying to rescue themselves. And I think that, and one of those characters is the guy there that who says, I hope so. He hopes people would act selflessly in that. And, and at the same time, he himself is not acting selflessly when put in the same situation. Now, there's lots of things in this movie that talk about what people would do and that people should know, but there's also some, some very interesting side comments that are made. There's the, the scientist who is kind of uh, carrying this through all the way through the movie. He had told his father about the coming disaster, and everybody else who had broken that secret had been killed in the three years between the when they found out that it was going to happen and when it actually happened. But his father had managed to keep his mouth shut, so he didn't get killed. But there's very interesting, because he's having a conversation with his friend. They're boarding a cruise ship. They're the act, one of the acts on this cruise ship. And they're talking about their loved ones. And this is... One of this is one of the comments that is made, and I think it's just it's very interesting because you're you're building up to finding out that the world is ending, and this is the comment that this gentleman says about his son. DC is a long way, but at least we talk about what life and how short it is. So, as I just mentioned earlier, we have to be ready for the end of the world whenever it happens. This is one of those things is that if you know the end of the world is coming, one of the things that you would talk about with your loved ones is life and how short it is. Because you never know, 
really, when a loved one is going to die, you can hope that we live into our 80s or 90s, but tragedy can take us at any moment. And whether or not the Lord comes, we can die of cancer or a heart attack or any of the other numerous health-related issues that can just come up on us without a warning. And we don't really understand how fragile life is because sometimes we feel immortal. We feel like we've got all of eternity if we just can just waste our time. But if you know the world's going to end, let's say if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, what would become your priorities? Would it be making money? Because money isn't going to be worth anything then. Is it going to be finding your loved ones and being with them? I would have hoped so, because that is where your priority should be, is in, number one, your faith in the Lord and in your loved ones. Because those, in the end, those are the only things that are truly important in your life. They should be your highest priorities. Now, there's religions are not necessarily put forward in a very good light in this movie. And I wanted to point out just a couple little things that are brought put out, and I think they're put out specifically to make Christians, well, religions in general, but specifically Christians, look bad. Thank you, Bill. What is your question? I wanted to know, where is all this going to start? Well, something like this can only originate in Hollywood, Bill, but <laughs> seriously, they got the earth cracking already. Our family believes in gospel of the Lord Jesus. We have nothing to fear, Charlie. Good for you, Bill. Thanks for calling. This is Charlie Frost reporting live from Yellowstone National Park, soon to become the world's largest active volcano. Now, while it's true that as those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ have do not have to fear the end of the world, that is true. I somehow think that they stuck that in there to make it Christians look a little stupid. And it's. I think part of it's the way they used the, the um, the way the gentleman spoke on the phone and his accent. They tried to make him sound like a, a backwards country hick who really doesn't know what he's talking about. And I was a, a little annoyed by that. I think it was very subtly done. Um, there was absolutely no reason to stick that in the movie other than to to bring out that kind of gut reaction of <laughs> that stupid idiot. And I think that that was actually one of the reasons why they stuck that in there. Now, there was another, it was, it was actually kind of very subtle thing because you're watching a news broadcast that the scientists and the, the politicians are looking at. And this is uh, a description of what's going on while the world is crumbling around everybody's ears. Reports from all across the globe. Millions upon millions of distraught masses are gathering in public places everywhere, converging in desperate prayer. Preachers of many religious denominations have taken their message of the end of the world to the streets all over the U.S. Kind of galling when you realize that nutbags with the cardboard signs had a right the whole time. There's two things that jump out at me in that, and that is, first... The nut bags with the signs had it right all the time. Okay, so he does has a very low opinion for religious people. The other thing is that they say that they're gathering around in desperate prayer. And shortly after this comment, you see all of the, the people, the Catholics, gathering in the Vatican, uh, around the Vatican to pray, and the crumbling of the of the roof of the chapel and the destruction of everybody as the the whole structure crumbles down and falls on people and kills them is that the the idea is is that Christians even the Christians were not helped by their god even though they gathered in desperate prayer the prayer availed them nothing and they were killed just as badly as everybody else and so i think that there is 
even though there is, a, you know, on one side, they're saying, hey, yeah, they knew it was going to happen. And the other side, yeah, they knew it was going to happen, but it didn't do them a bit of good because they got killed just like everybody else. So I think that there is definitely a slight agenda there in making religions look bad. And I just wanted to point it out to my listeners. You can see that in the movie. If you're sensitive to it, you will notice that this is definitely, despite the fact that he was making a a modern-day Noah's Ark flood story movie, he was not in any way trying to portray religions in a good light. In fact, one of his characters that you most sympathize with is the scientist. His name is Adrian. And his perspective on the whole matter is a little bit humanistic and a little more naturalistic. So this is what he had to say about how people survived. And it, it's, I think this is the view that the director was actually putting forward. All those people we left behind, they don't stand a chance, do they? I believe that nature will choose for itself, from itself, what will survive. And then he goes on to say something that is even more humanistic. Our culture is our soul, and that's not dying tonight. Oh, come on. I contributed to this cover-up. And Da Vinci and Picasso, they're in. But you're some nobody, you don't stand a chance. So he's claiming that the culture, our culture, is our soul. So if we save all those paintings and and works of art, works of art, works of music, all of that stuff, if we save those, then we've we haven't died because we've saved our culture. And to be honest, I think partially our culture, actually a great deal of our culture, is what should die because, uh, as it says in the days of Noah, people will be doing cultural, societal things, and it's those things that bring on the judgment of God, because he is, hates, absolutely hates some of the things that we do as a, as a culture, as, as an anti-God society that just rejects him in every way of our lives. But this is a good segue, because it's talking about how were people chosen to be saved, because it's vastly different in this movie than how it actually happened during Noah's flood. People chosen? Same way your art was. By experts from all over the world, we had geneticists determine the perfect gene pool we need to repopulate. These people were chosen by geneticists? All three Please proceed. Gallery D4. Looks to me like their checkbook's got him on board. That's right, Dr. Wilson. Without billions of dollars from the private sector, this entire operation would have been impossible. We sold tickets. What about all these workers? They all get passes? What? Life isn't fair? Is that it? You want to donate your passes to a couple of Chinese workers? You be my guest. Remember, this is the uh, Adrian, our sympathetic scientific character, and the daughter of the U.S. president who are talking with a politician who basically takes over control when the president decides to go down with his ship or with his country as it is completely demolished. Now, this is an interesting quote because further on you'll see... um, all of these people that don't get to board because the Ark 3 is destroyed and is not safe to board, so all of these people have no place to go. And the and Adrian makes this statement. Everybody out there has died in vain if we start our future with an act of cruelty. What would you tell your children? What will they tell theirs? I would say... 
actually that this entire selection process was a cruel thing because even the president mentioned um, before he sends Adrian on his way that he had wished that they had done it as a lottery so that everybody had a chance to get on the arcs to be saved. But instead they sold the tickets and only the most wealthiest people of the world and a few selected for genetic purposes were able to get on the ark. And then because they only had three operating arcs, uh, the contingent of a fourth arc were waiting for to board an arc that they weren't going to board. And so they ended up having to fit all of those people on the other three arcs because Adrian talks the other heads of state into opening the gates of the three remaining arcs and letting those people on even though it would overpopulate them. But if you think about it, that selection process to get on to be saved doesn't make a lot of sense because there isn't anything about... Uh, the worthiness of the people that get on because we have all of these people through the entire movie dying just in horrific ways. Most of them not even knowing the end of the world was coming. And the people who selected who got to be saved based it on some very inane reasoning. I mean, you see the people going on the ark. A lot of them were old or obviously past their time to repopulate and it didn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to put together a group of people that are going to repopulate the world and you only have a a few hundred thousand people to do it you would want to try and pick the best genetically and not worry about people who can't uh, procreate can't have children and they do see them putting animals on so they were thinking ahead at least repopulating the earth with animals but the in the scripture we find out that the sole purpose, the sole requirement for being saved was righteousness. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the persons the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. That's first Peter three, eighteen through twenty. And then in second Peter two, five and Verse 9, it says, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so the sole criteria for getting on the ark in the days of Noah was righteousness and being godly. And that just goes to show how terrible the world really was that there were only eight people that made it on the ark. Now, we can theorize based on the fact that the scripture does refer to Noah as being a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness, that he spent all of the time that he was building the ark preaching in vain to the people around him, trying to to get them to understand that the end of the world, their end of their world was coming to was coming and that they needed to be prepared. And we can also theorize from that that there were positions, they made places on the ark for more people, that there was actually a lot more room on that ark for more people to be saved. But in the end, it was only Noah and his family that ended up going on the ark because they were the only ones that took God's warning seriously and looked for salvation. I thought we'd have more time. So when you get right down to it, 
my analysis of this movie boils down to one main concept, and that is, are you ready for the end of the world? See, they didn't have enough time to rescue everybody. Even if their schedule had gone according to projection and they'd had the time to finish all the arcs, they still couldn't have rescued everybody on the planet. There was a definite cutoff time. And you don't know when that cutoff time is for you. The thing is, is that even if the world doesn't end on 12-21-2012, which I kind of sincerely doubt that it will, you might not even last until then. So you have to be ready. And so my question to you is, are you ready for the end of your world? Because Noah had an ark to turn to, and we need to turn to the ark of Jesus Christ because he paid the debt for our sins. And if we don't take advantage of that free gift then we are not prepared for the end of our world. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not even guaranteed the next minute. And it's all well and good to go in and be entertained by the end of the world where we get desensitized to the deaths of millions of people. But if you're not ready, then that death could be yours. And I pray that you take the opportunity to see Christ before it's too late. Now, before we completely close up discussion, I do want to go into just a little bit of the humor in this movie. It was a very ridiculous movie. I haven't even touched on the the total bizarre ridiculousness of one family just escaping every single tragedy from California all the way to China and somehow surviving in the end. It's it's completely ridiculous. In fact, I told my dad when we were watching the movie that he was going to be saying, oh my, Really? quite a lot in the movie. In fact, you pretty much say it every five minutes from about a third of the movie on because it's completely ridiculous. But there's a lot of humor in this movie too. And I think one of my favorite humor lines is when they are uh, the, the, our hero, he has a a wife who he's divorced from and she has a boyfriend and they are shopping in a grocery store. And this happens. Hey, okay. Listen, we have to keep working at this. Our relationship. I mean, I don't know, honey. I just feel like there's something pulling us apart. And all that noise you hear is the floor of the store cracking open, creating this humongous chasm between them. And so, yes, something is pulling them apart. The whole disaster is pulling them apart. In fact, to to spoil the end of the movie, he ends up dying so they can get back together, which is actually one of the very few redeeming things about this movie is that the, the husband and wife mend their relationship and get back together. And I, I personally am... Uh, very appalled by divorce. And I I always think that remarriage is a a big mistake because even if you are separated from your spouse, you should always leave room for reconciliation because I I really feel like the Lord intends us to stay in the marriage that we start with because until we die. When they tell you not to panic, that's when you run! I don't know how true that is, but I thought it was one of the funnier part of the movie, so I had to just throw that quote in. And last but not least, this is the best musical interlude to finish off the discussion of this movie. Well, that concludes my remarks on the movie 2012, but I hope that 
you have been thinking critically when you watch movies like this. And if you have any further comments or insights that you would like to make about 2012, feel free to leave them on the show notes for the show. And those again are at areyoujustwatching.com slash 33. Hey, did you see that? <laughs> one for you and one for me. You, 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 and one for me. If you watch TV at all, leading up to Black Friday, you probably saw that commercial over and over again. It's a Black Friday commercial for Target. And the thing that really annoyed me about this commercial, other than the fact that it's for Target and I don't like any of their advertising, it very unapologetically personified what our society is about at Christmas these days. It's like the whole selfishness of the holiday. It's like, it's not so much about giving to other people. It's about looking for the stuff that you want for yourself. And I'm not saying that we don't do that, but I don't think they need to be so unnecessarily chipper about it because it's actually a bad part of human nature, not a good part of human nature. In Acts 20.35, Luke says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I think that should be our focus this time of year, not just on giving in general to our fellow man, but in remembering the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus Christ, that God sent to the earth to be our salvation, that Now that's my 90 second insight into a commercial. And now it's your turn because I want to get these kind of short little snippets of critical thinking from my listeners. And all you have to do in order to participate is come up with a commercial or a snippet from a news program or a snippet from a TV show or a snippet even from a movie that made you think just of of a specific verse in the Bible or some worldview issue that you can talk about in less than 90 seconds. And then you can send that to us. You can either phone it in to us at 903-231-2221, or you can create your own recording of it and send it to feedback at areyoujustwatching.com with did you see that in the subject line. And I just... really excited about creating this way for you to participate in the show, not just sending feedback on the movies we talk about, but actually participate in showing how you are doing critical thinking in your entertainment. That's it for this episode, but you can stay in touch with us by commenting on the show notes, as I mentioned before. That's areyoujustwatching.com slash 33. You can also call 903-231-2221 to leave us a voicemail, or you could email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com, and we really appreciate audio files because then we can bring you into an episode and actually make you a part of the broadcast. You can also follow me at twitter.com slash Franklin. And you can be involved on our Facebook page. You can find that at facebook.com slash are you just watching spelled out. And I really encourage you to keep up with the Facebook page because I intend to start uh, giving little notices before I start recording another episode so that, um, to you know, a pre-call for any insights or comments regarding movies that I'm about to record about. So I really would appreciate having your involvement in that. It makes it a lot more than just my voice. And if you haven't done it already, I highly encourage you to go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of the episodes as they come out. I really am planning on bringing out more over the next few months and not letting it go months and months without putting out an episode. And I want you to check out noodle.mx as well for our other terrific podcasts that we have for you to get involved in. So once again, thank you for listening. I'm Eve Franklin. And don't just watch.
Are you just watching as a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx? Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx. Noodle.mx.